Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, and if you're French, happy Bastille Day. If you're not French, happy Friday. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on Friday the 14th of July. Thank you for listening, and thank you for making my Money Talk podcast one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's closely watched June trade data badly missed expectations, with exports contracting more than expected in June, hit by shrinking global demand and adding to concerns about the mainland's faltering economy. Exports from China shrank 12.4% year-on-year in June, following a 7.5% fall in May. It was the second straight month of decline and the steepest drop since February 2020, and imports fell 6.8%. The Bank of Korea kept its base rate unchanged at 3.5% during its meeting yesterday, as widely expected. It's the fourth straight meeting the Bank of Korea has done so after last hiking rates in January, as inflation continued to ease. Thursday's move came after the central bank delivered seven straight hikes since April 2022. U.S. wholesale inflation slowed more than expected in June, a second signal in as many days that the Federal Reserve's rate-rising campaign is helping ease price pressures. Producer prices, which is a leading indicator of inflation, edged up 0.1% month-over-month in June, following an upwardly revised 0.4% fall in May and below-market forecasts. Core PPI, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, also rose 0.1% last month, slowing the annualised rate of price increases to 2.6% from 2.8%. And the German government has unveiled a landmark shift in how it views its relationship with China. In its first ever China strategy, it says China is increasingly emerging as a systemic rival to the West. Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said Beijing had become more repressive internally and more aggressive externally, and while it remained a partner, its role as systemic rival was beginning to dominate. But the government rejected the notion of decoupling from China, but, st- but stressed the need for China to de-risk, uh, for Germany to de-risk and diversify its supply chains and export markets away from China. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO of Staten Partners. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks rose Thursday after another key inflation reading. The producer price index came in lighter than expected. The S&P 500 closed at its highest level in over a year, climbing 0.9% to reach 4,510. All 12 sectors in the S&P 500 are on track to end the week higher, with communication services and energy the best performing sectors. The S&P 500 is now 3% above the level it was at when the Fed first hiked rates in March 2022. The Dow added 48 points, or 0.1%, to close at 34,395. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 1.6% to end at 14,139, led by gains in heavyweights Alphabet and NVIDIA. It was the fourth consecutive day of gains for the major averages. The good news inflation, uh, the good inflation news sent rate change expectations for the rest of the year tumbling. The market is now pricing in a single 25 basis point hike in July, no move until the year end and a rate cut then in January 2024. Yields are sharply lower on the week. 
The yield on the two-year note dropped 11 basis points to 4.63% yesterday, leaving it 32 basis points lower on the week so far. The 10-year yield declined 10 basis points to a 3.77%, leaving it 30 basis points lower on the week. And the 2 to 10's yield curve is at minus 86 basis points. That's up from a record inversion of minus 110 basis points a week week ago. The US dollar index fell below 100 Thursday, marking its lowest level since April 2022, a month after the Fed's tightening cycle kicked off. On Thursday, it fell 0.8% to 99.78 and is now down 2.4% for the week and on pace for its worst week since November. Chinese stocks surged Thursday after Beijing pledged to support tech platforms, suggesting a crackdown on the sector is drawing to a close. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index jumped 490 points higher, that's 2.6%, leading gains in the region. And that takes the gains in the Hang Seng for the week so far to 5.4% and on track for the best week since January. Technology stocks in Hong Kong rallied for a fourth day after Premier Li Keqiang met with senior executives from the country's leading technology firms on Wednesday. He vowed to help them grow, saying they needed to push uh, to increase their international competitiveness and dare to compete on the global stage. Premier Li said the government would normalise regulation and called on all levels of government to create a better market environment. The Hang Seng Tech Index surged 3.8%, taking its gains for the week so far to almost 9%. Alibaba rose 3.2%, while Tencent added 2.9%. Mainland Chinese markets were also all up with the Shanghai Composite Index gaining 1.3% to 3,236. Futures markets are pointing to gains of 160 points or 0.8% for the Hang Seng at the open. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And on this bright and hot Friday morning, we welcome Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Hi, good morning. And also with us, Andrew Sullivan, who is founder of Asian Market Sense. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. Um, let me ask you, first of all, then, about this support from Premier Li Chang mm. uh, for the tech companies. He met with senior executives from several of them, included Alibaba, ByteDance, Metroan, JD. And he urged local governments to provide them with more support. He called them trailblazers of the era. Is this now a real change in in approach from the Chinese government, do you think, to the the platform companies? Yeah, definitely. Because uh, uh, all these uh, platform companies have been under pressure since uh, 2021. So for two years, well, two and a half years, they've been under pressure to uh, do this and do that and then firing people and they stop growing. And uh, now they got the green light uh, from Premier said, that, okay, all is forgiven. Now you can start growing again. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, though, the problem is that they're not going to go back to be allowed the, the free enterprises that they mm. were prior to the crackdown. I mean, Beijing has obviously set rules for what they can and can't do. There's common prosperity that they're still trying to adhere to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think from an investor's point of view, they're not going to be the uh, the golden geese that they used to be. Mm. And when you look at their size now, I mean, look at Ant Group. It's what, its valuation 75% below where it was uh, when it was going to IPO. And, and Jack Ma's companies, Alibaba's companies, they've lost about 850 billion US dollars as a result of this crackdown. So they're, in some ways, you, you could argue they're just a, a fraction of their original size and, and just a, a sort of a shadow of what they used to be. Yeah, they've been cut down to size because uh, previously they were something like... Uh 
uh, seven billion Hong Kong dollars or something like that, and 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 they're richer than the government, and they're in every <laughs> single uh, sector of the economy. So the government fear their power, so mm. they cut them to size. Now they're at the size that the government can control. So now they can start growing again. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing. I mean, the, the government wants to have control. It's put you know party uh, party uh, members party within there and party <laughs> secretaries in there. You know, the, the government can see fully what they're doing. I mean, historically, you know, they they were worried about the amount of commerce that was going through. The fact that these companies knew more about people's personal savings and spending mm. than the PBOC did. Um, the trouble is that that, is, that innovation being removed means that uh, effectively the economy is not going to grow in the same way it was prior. So how do they innovate if their first um, task, if you like, if their first mission is to be loyal to the government and follow Communist Party sort of doctrine and Communist Party policy? How, how do you innovate when you've got Communist Party members on your board that are ultimately dictating the, the, the direction the company goes in? Well, it's difficult, but but they learn. I think uh, I, I I spoke to the people in the movie industry. I said, with so many restrictions, how can you survive? He said, we learn how to operate under these tight laws. Mm, I think that's right. I mean, they they will change. I just don't think you'll see the same rate of growth that you saw historically. Mm. I think the other the other encouraging thing though is it means that obviously a lot of people that were uh, hesitant about you know giving approval for games and for new. Uh, uh, new services are, are probably going to be more inclined, and we'll see that that process speed up. But uh, as, as Francis was saying, they'll they'll have to learn, they'll have to adapt. But it certainly won't be the the, the free enterprise that it was prior. Mm-hmm. And th- th- there's always the risk, of course, that there could be another crackdown if they think that one of them is breaking the rules somewhere. Well, I think that's what investors are now aware of: the, the fact that Beijing can change its mind overnight. And mm. I think that's not just for the uh, e-commerce sector. I think that's actually in all businesses there that it's you know, the risk of operating in China and the risk of government change of policy is, is much higher than it has been. I mean, Premier Li Chang wants them to compete internationally. You could argue that three years ago, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, they were in a good position to compete internationally, mm-hmm. weren't they? They'd made some yeah. good acquisitions, but they've been forced to divest uh, quite a few of them. Are they now in a position to compete internationally? Well, I think uh, ByteDance is the one who, uh, which has uh, competed successfully overseas. And uh, had they not been uh, constrained by the Indian government, they would have dominated the mm. Indian the internet scene. But I think uh, in, in Southeast Asia, I think the, uh, they still can carve out a niche for themselves. Uh, you, you just look at the electric car industry. I think two years ago, nobody expected the uh, Chinese electric car industry to be forced to be reckoned with. Now they are the largest in the world and the biggest exporters in the world. So mm. I, I, I think they, they have the ability to carve out uh, international markets. Mm. I'm not, I mean, I think the trouble is the rest of the world has caught up with them. So <laughs> they, had a, they had an advantage previously mm-hmm. that, that's been taken away from them. And, and you've, you know, they've got the added restriction now of whatever they do internationally has got to be approved by the party. Mm. Um, so, you know, previously, I mean, you look at, you know, the ant payment system, the 10 cent payments, they, they were world leaders. Mm. But the rest of the world has caught up now. So it's going to be much more difficult. And the, the governments have been told at all levels to reduce red tape 
create a transparent and predictable regulatory system. Do you think that's going to happen? Because, you know, once you've got these people who are, you know, creating this red (laughs) tape, wrapping you up in it, it's very difficult for them to learn how to stop, isn't it? They want to carry on finding new rules and regulations that you should be following or have broken somehow. Well, I think uh, uh, they will try to do it because everybody will try to listen to the central party. I think you take a, take the case of Zhejiang uh, uh, province, uh, and Alibaba is their lifeblood, and mm. just about every party secretary, provincial uh, 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 officials depend on their on Alibaba's well being. So they they don't want to kill the goose that laid the golden eggs. Mm. Well, they've already strangled it. To be fair, <laughs> but uh, they're hoping to put some more uh, life back into it. But I think I think that's right. I mean, they will try. I mean, the the, the, the big the other big thing is the fact I think that uh, you know the, the threat of being you know done for graft by approving these games and these uh, new activities is probably reduced. It's not gone away, but it's it's reduced, and that will help local authorities to uh, reduce the red tape. Mm, because they've they've acted in the past, they've been terrified, haven't they, of missing something, getting something wrong, and then mm-hmm. getting hauled up in front of the disciplinary committee. Well, I think it's the difference between you know, being told to get things moving and, and you know, versus uh, being careful about not breaking the rules. So mm. I think you know, that, that's obviously in their benefit. Well, what do you make to the, of the market reaction to this? The Hang Seng jumped 490 yeah. points yesterday. It's up so far for the week now, 5.4%. It's on track for the best week since January. Is this now the green light for people to start getting back into, into Hong Kong stocks uh, yes, I think uh, uh, what the uh, Premier Li Chiang said is exactly what the what the investment uh, community want, wanted to hear. It's just the uh, uh, letting go of controls and then let the internet company platforms do what they want to, let them grow again, let them hire people again. I think uh, uh, for the past two years, uh, uh, all the, uh, the share prices of, of all these platform shares have plunged something like 75%. That is really quite a disaster. Now we can uh, grow, start growing again. I think this is the good news that everybody expected. I, I'm, I'm not quite so bullish. I mean, I think a lot of it was short covering. I mean, because mm. the whole index went up, so you saw, mm. you know, even unrelated stocks uh, going up significantly, which was short covering, and then they were reshorted again at the end of the day. So there's mm. still a lot of concern <laughs> out there, and I think a lot of investors, you know, we've seen that, you know, we've seen the, uh, as Francis was saying, the Chinese will tell the, the investment community or say to the investment community what it wants to hear, mm. but. Mm. A lot of investors now, we've heard this so many times before, that a lot of investors will actually, you know, they'll cover their short positions and then they'll sit on the sidelines again, waiting to see whether we really see policy change or whether it is just words and trying to talk the market up. We're seeing that. We're hearing from Goldman Sachs Prime Services Desk. They're saying their hedge fund clients have been buyers of Chinese equities for the first time in about seven or eight weeks. So, mm-hmm. um, But what about institutional investors they've been left quite underweight haven't they on on china do you think maybe there could be some panic buying from some of them as they start to sort of scramble to get back into the market or are they going to take a a much more longer term wait and see approach i think it's the longer term wait and see i mean that realistically you know everybody piled in you know once they pivoted on zero covid uh, mm. expecting a strong rebound and a strong recovery and that didn't happen uh, and I think having been sort of caught short once, people are going to be much more reserved this time around. Plus the fact, you know, US yields have gone up. So, you know, there are lots of 
you know, good other alternatives without the risk of policy change. Mm. Well, we had some trade data out of China, badly missed expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, exports fell 12.4% year on year. That's even worse than the 7.5% fall uh, we saw in May. Exports to the US, they fell almost 24%, the 11th straight month of declines. Uh, and that's w- the worst result since the slump at the beginning of the pandemic. Shipments to Asia and South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Germany, Italy, the UK, Netherlands and Canada all fell by double digits. Mm-hmm. Um, and imports, uh, they were also, um, imports were also down um, as well by... year on year. The hits just keep on coming, don't they, for the Chinese economy. You can sort of almost understand Mm -hmm. why Li Chang really needs private companies now to step up to the plate and somehow drag the economy back out of the mire. Yeah, I think that's the problem of uh, 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 excessive lockdown during the uh, pandemic years. And uh, uh, China uh, almost completely locked down in 2022, and uh, uh, big companies like Apple and, and others really suffer from it. So so they diversify their suppliers, and they shift productions to uh, other Asian countries. And then this is the result of what, what what the Germans call the risk, mm. and then <laughs> what the Americans call the coupling. So, so, so China is, is ripping the results of its terrible, stupid policies. I think Francis is right there. I mean, the, the, the other thing you've got to take into account here is the fact that, you know, the global economy in the meantime has slowed down. Mm-hmm. Um, people, as Francis was saying, have, have moved their supply chains. And the other thing is that, you know, the SOE companies were never good at creating jobs. Um, it was always the private, the SMEs and the private enterprise that were creating a lot of the jobs. You know, we haven't seen a change of policy on the education sector. That used to take about 25, 30% of university graduates each year. And this is why they have a youth unemployment problem, because they've cut the sectors that were really creating new jobs for the, for the youth. And that's a mm-hmm. big driver. Mm-hmm. So you've got a situation where, you know, there's not a lot of domestic confidence for those reasons, and also because the property sector is so bad, you wake up every morning and your house price hasn't gone up <laughs> for the first time in 20 years. Or gone uh, down in some cases. Probably gone down. And I think, I mean, looking forward, I mean, we get another big dump of data on Monday, mm-hmm. which is going to be very important. And, and, and it will probably underline why China is so worried and it's trying to talk the market up as much as it can, because it can't afford to do fiscal intervention. Um, it's got very limited way of going back, and it doesn't want to do the previous stimulus because that just created a bubble. So it's got very limited opportunities. So what does it do? Well, it's doing what it can do, which is to try and talk it up. Talk it up. (laughs) (laughs) But but investors will eventually see through that, won't they? And they'll say, we need some action as well here, not just the words. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, and I think, you know, we'll see, you know, we're seeing this, you know, this little blip at the moment on on good words. But Mm. it can can unwind very, very quickly if we don't really see action. And Mm. I think realistically... Difficult though it is, China is going to have to do some structural changes mm-hmm. uh, because it can't afford to do a fiscal intervention and it doesn't want to do a monetary. It's got limited. You know, it, it talks about moving, ba- you know, ten basis points on its on its long. I mean, that really doesn't move doesn't, the dial for yeah. a lot of people. So it's got its number one priority. Surely, it's got to decide what it wants to do about the property sector, hasn't it? Because mm-hmm. in effect, the property sector is bust. Um, And we don't even know the true extent of the damage there because we don't really know um, how much indebtedness the property developers have off balance sheets. We don't know the true extent to which banks are exposed um, to them either. But somehow uh, the government has got to deal with this, hasn't it? Yeah, they have to. I 
I think just uh, 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 what the largest property uh, developers alone is it, uh, indebted to the two, not two trillion yuan. So, wow. so if you times that, so it's something like twenty trillion yuan mm. of uh, uh, property debt, mm. uh, and which you really have to deal with because uh, the property market has been oversupplied for years. I I remember more than ten years ago, I I saw it uh, all these empty flats. I said the the property bu uh, bubble will burst sooner or later. Of course, it. it, it it was later. It burst in 2020, mm. and uh, uh, and the government will take, t I think, more than 10 years to recover from it. I think it wasn't so much of a bubble as a Ponzi scheme because you know, yeah. it was in everybody's interest for prices to yeah, go up. Yeah, especially the local government. And local governments wouldn't allow prices to go down. They would only sell land at a higher price to keep, mm -hmm. the, to keep the scheme going. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I think we're hearing this morning that one of the northern provinces has actually you know, gone to the central government and said, look, hands up, we're bust. We need to be restructured. And mm -hmm. that's what they're going to have to do. They'll have to restructure that government debt to allow these the local authorities some budget, you know, or, yeah, or they have to yeah. change the tax system. Yeah, meaning bailing out the uh, poor provinces. <laughs> yes, well, you know, the, you know the, I think Jingshu province has got something like 12 years' worth of supply of property mm -hmm. to work its way through. Tier 1 and Tier 2 cities, not going to be a problem. Everybody wants to live there, still good demand. But Tier 3, Tier 4, much, yeah, much yeah, more Yeah, the northern provinces, they're losing population. Yeah. That's the big problem. Yeah. So as well as the domestic issues, I mean, China's got international issues as well, hasn't it? The, ex mm -hmm. the external environment is not looking good, so China mm -hmm. can't rely on trade. It does seem that that announcement from the German government is quite significant, isn't it, where it's mm -hmm. talking about basically it's come up for the first time now with a specific China strategy where it openly says it's going to sort of de-risk, as it calls it, uh, from China, but rely less mm -hmm. on China, uh, move supply chains from, uh, from China. So it does seem that the international environment is also worsening. I think what Germany uh, wants to do is really diversify the supply chain for some of the key uh, commodities like uh, uh, rare earth metals and other things like that. Mm. And so, so, so I think uh, it, I've, it will hurt definitely. Uh, I, I think you look over the horizon, uh, 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 Biden's uh, Inflation Reduction Act is actually square square aim squarely at uh, China's uh, EV, especially the back electric car battery sector, because mm. right now 60% of the car batteries are made in China, and Biden wants to shift that to, to the U.S., and that will hurt even more. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the thing is Germany historically has been a big reliance. There's been both ways, trade with China and mm -hmm. its exports to China. And obviously, you know, its car historic car manufacturing in China has been huge ever since uh, mm -hmm. uh, Volkswagen went there back in, the, uh, back in the 80s, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, right. and, and the fact that it's made this decision really shows that it's looking to diversify. And it's it, it, following really what Australia had to do when it had the spat about you know, the Australian government saying it wanted an investigation into where COVID came from. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> China shut it down, so it had to find alternatives. And I think more and more countries, having previously happily been reliant on China for trade in both directions, have now decided it is too risky.
It does also show, doesn't it, the huge price that maybe China is paying for its support for Russia and it's cozying yeah. up to Putin. I mean, Germany openly said that in its report that, you know, it, this was damaging to China's EU relations. And you have to ask, is it really worth it? <laughs> well, I think obviously <laughs> President Xi thinks it is because, I mean, he sees that, you know, he sees this as a, you know, a, 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 an almost binary battle. And if China, if if Russia fails, then you know that's one less ally to China, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a big concern for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about inflation? That's been the big focus of the week, hasn't it, over in the US? We had, first of all, consumer price inflation uh, on Wednesday. The annual inflation rate slowed to 3% in June compared to 4% in May. And then also last night, we had producer price uh, data as well, which showed um, a bigger slowdown uh, than expected in the, uh, in the producer prices. And um, the markets have really taken this to heart, haven't they? Particularly mm-hmm. in the currency markets, the US dollar has been absolutely hammered yeah. uh, since, since this data. Um, come out. But do you think at last um, the, the Fed's on top of it? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, uh, finally we see like at the end of the tunnel I think uh, rate increases will probably end sometimes uh, in the next few months. I think uh, after one more in, uh, rate increase I think the Fed will have to stop because the, the only thing they haven't really bring under control is the rent rates. Because the rental market is still very tight, and, and but the food prices, energy costs are go- coming down. So I think uh, uh, the Fed managed to bring down inflation without causing a recession in the U.S. Mm. Yeah, I think the you know the, 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 there's still a very tight labour market, and we saw the decline in uh, initial claims you know yesterday. Mm. I think that the thing is though, I think the market is over discounting rate cuts. I mean, I think the Fed is making it very clear that it, it knows it's going to have to keep these rates higher for longer, whereas you know the, the markets are saying, oh, well, look, maybe one more hike this year and then we'll see some cuts next year. I suspect that we won't because that last, getting the inflation down, those last 1% or whatever, always takes a That's lot hard, longer. That's hard, isn't it? Yeah, That's and you've got, tough. because you've got people's wage expectations coming into effect then, mm-hmm. you know, they, the fact that, that, you know, we've also got the, uh, mm-hmm. the fact that student debt isn't going to see the relief we thought it was going to, so people will have mm-hmm. less money to spend. Uh, and hence they will be looking for higher wages, and that's going to keep that market tighter for longer. Yeah, even the actors are striking. Yes. <laughs> but the, the risk is this can all turn so quickly, can't it? All we need mm-hmm. is one set of bad inflation data that maybe is higher than uh-huh. expectations, and then suddenly everything changes again, and people start worrying that maybe the Fed isn't on top of things yet, and more rate hikes are to come. Well, they've, they've said they're data dependent. Every meeting is live as far as they're concerned, mm-hmm. and it it's really is dependent. And, and as you say, I mean, we only need to see something you know fall out of bed you know the higher oil prices will have an effect i mean we saw those you know people oil hit a new high last night Mm -hmm. because people aren't expecting inflation Mm -hmm. and that they are effectively expecting rate cuts and i don't think those are going to come in any any time soon what do you think this means for the markets? I mean, the statistic that I'm sort of surprised about is that the S&P 500, it's actually 3% higher than when the Fed's first started raising rates, what was it, 14, 15 months ago. So we've had five percentage points of rate hikes, but US stocks have ignored it all um, mm-hmm. and are higher than when the Fed started. Do you think this can continue? 
Yeah, I, I, I think uh, this latest one is, is really based on the economic growth, I think, uh, uh, or, or uh, something like innovation, like AI. I think, I, I, I think uh, that's why uh, the S&P and NASDAQ are up. But uh, you look at uh, Dow Jones, which represents more of the old economy, they're not really up that much. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been focused on those seven or eight key tech stocks. Yeah, the magnificent seven. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, because so much of this is invested by ETFs, if those mm-hmm. stocks go up, then the ETF has to buy the whole of the market, not mm-hmm. just those stocks. So you can mm-hmm. get the markets drawn up by that. But I think it also indicates that a lot of these stocks are just primed for perfection. And as mm-hmm. we go into this earnings season, if they miss, then they'll be sold. But mm-hmm. I think more importantly, if, if they don't give a, a rosy outlook mm-hmm. as demand in the second half and, and, and future, mm-hmm. then again they're going to get sold because they are just priced perfectively. Mm. There are signs that the, the rally's broadening out at the moment, isn't it? We've seen mm-hmm. industrials like the Dow Transport start to, start mm-hmm. to move up, uh, some of the... Um, some of the small caps as well. So the things that are sort of dependent upon a good good economy seem to be doing okay. Yeah, I think uh, uh, the uh, the recession that everybody had predicted uh, hasn't <laughs> come and will not come. I think you think it won't. You think the Fed's <laughs> it, it pulled won't. off the, the what yeah. everyone thought was impossible and guided inflation down yeah. and avoided a recession. That's well, right. I, I think you're right. It, it's all good until it isn't. That's going to be the thing. <laughs> you know, everybody's you know assuming it's all going to be good, but mm. one hiccup, and I think you'll see a lot of people mm. you know, bailing very quickly. And you've also got to remember, you know, and now. With America priced perfectly, a lot of the investors are now looking overseas. You know, is it worth chasing the stocks at these levels, or can I find good returns elsewhere? And we've seen that in Japan, mm-hmm. we've and, seen that in and Korea, India. And, and India and Korea. You know, mm-hmm. all of these markets have seen good inflows recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Japan had a race ahead; it's it's consolidating slightly, and I think you'll see people go back and have another look. Mm. And what about the US dollar? Um, the, the, the US dollar index has fallen below 100 now, so it's at its lowest level in about, what, 15 months, um, I think it is. The yen in particular, isn't it? That's really caught, uh, caught a bit of a, a, a tailwind. People thinking that the Bank of Japan is maybe going to stop yield curve control in the next couple of months, maybe. So what does this mean for the US dollar? Well, it keep uh, falling. I think uh, because the uh, rate increase cycle is coming to an end and uh, and you don't have the interest rate difference between the yuan and the US dollar now. So I think uh, next year we see the renminbi rising again. I mean, it's, it's been a hugely crowded trade for so long. Mm. And the fact is, once it starts turning, a lot of people start heading for the door. Um, but at the same time, I mean, looking at the yen, I mean, Yuida has already said he's going to give himself 18 months. I mean, obviously, he's not going to say we're going to change overnight because the market will front-run him. So he's given himself a, a long enough uh, you know, runway to be able to review what's going on. He wants to be very sure that the inflation is real inflation there because that in the past they've made mistakes and acted mm-hmm. too early. So he's going to do that, and he will gradually change, I think. He doesn't want the market to know that he's going to change because they've got too much of their, you know, they're owning too much of the, uh, the market in the bonds to be... Uh, front run by the rest of the market well thank you both very much Mm -hmm. great discussion this morning have a good weekend you Mm -hmm. heard there andrew sullivan who is founder of asian market sense francis lern who is the ceo of geo securities
I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Now, we have some breaking news. Michelle Bullock has just been announced as the new governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia by the Australian government. Um, Toby, I've never heard of her. Can you tell us a little bit about who she is? Yes, Michelle Bullock has been announced uh, this morning as the new Reserve Bank governor, effective from September when uh, Philip Lowe's uh, term expires. Uh, she's currently Deputy Governor. She's been with the Reserve Bank since 1985, so she's a career bureaucrat. She's the first woman in the Reserve Bank's 63-year uh, history to lead the Central Bank with a ninth Governor. And uh, she arrives at a time when the Reserve Bank's going through a significant review of its processes and how it communicates in relation to monetary policy and how it determines monetary policy. So it'll be a very interesting time for her, but she's clearly an experienced candidate, uh, well entrenched within the Reserve Bank, and has been chosen because of that. Mm. And do we know anything about her sort of stance? Is she a hawk? Is she a dove? Is she one of those people that's you know has been um, saying that interest rates need to move higher? What's her sort of stance been like? She's yeah, she's been very consistent uh, in line with uh, the uh, with Philip Lowe, the current governor, in terms of most recent speeches. Uh, very, very much in line. Doesn't uh, doesn't appear to be outside of the of 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 the dictat that's sort of driven by Reserve Bank uh, communication. So. I think she's a she's a steady choice, um, and I think one of the factors that uh, drove the government to choose her was the fact that they they're going through a full review, and given her experience in the organisation to implement that review and implement new policy around Reserve Bank, uh, I think she's the, the appropriate choice. And there's no political, you know. Um, element to it, which is also really important to mm. ensure that the Reserve Bank Governor remains very much an independent decision. And the, and the Reserve Bank of Australia has come under some criticism, hasn't it, under, under Philip Lowe, because, particularly because he said a couple of years ago, we're, we're not going to be raising rates, only to go and raise them by, what, five percentage points um, shortly after that. So they, they sort of um, have come under scrutiny, haven't they, about um, how they've got inflation wrong? Yeah, it was the most unfortunate quote uh, from the Reserve Bank Governor back in when he mentioned that. And uh, to be fair, you know, uh, central banks around the world had to all react in, in a similar manner to what the Australian Central Bank did. But he's sort of worn this, unfortunately, as a, as a, you know, as his legacy. And to some extent, the government uh, could be criticised for using it as a bit of a deflection. In terms of saying, well, it's all because of uh, you know the Reserve Bank that uh, we've got interest rates at going up to you know, uh, twelve times, thirteen times, and four point one percent from pretty much zero. So to some extent, he's been a bit un unlucky because uh, you know uh, everywhere around the world, central banks had to move very aggressively to arrest the you know the cost push inflation that came through post pandemic, and. So unfortunately for him, that'll be his legacy. Um, but uh, I suspect, um, you know, uh, now that he's out, there's a clean slate, uh, a chance for Michelle Bullock to, to step up and for the government to, you know, ensure that the independence of the Reserve Bank is sustained. Mm. And he, what, to be fair, wasn't the only one who got it wrong, was he? Jerome Powell famously said inflation was transitory a couple of years ago and then ended up having to ban the Fed from ever using that word again. But it does look like from the data that we've seen this week that maybe the Fed is on top of things. We've seen US inflation, consumer price inflation at the slowest pace uh, in two years. Producer price data uh, out last night showed PPI also slowing as well. This has had a big impact on the markets, hasn't it? 
I, yeah, I think the word transitory might be back in fashion. Um, uh, I was reading this morning about these uh, recent PPI and CPI figures as you know justified that actually a lot of the big move in inflation from 2021 was in fact transitory. It's just a matter of how long is transitory by definition. Mm. Interestingly, the PPI was as low as since 2020. So I think it's fair to say that all of the impact of the supply chain constraints driven by the pandemic and also some of that pent-up demand that was driven by uh, people not being able to spend money has now basically come out of the inflation figures. So you've got base effect coming out. Plus, you've got the reality that uh, the prices on the manufacturing side or the input side have definitely become more disinflationary. Where the issue is now is that last mile. I'm not sure if any of your listeners have renovated a house, but, you know, it all looks very good up until probably the last 10% of the work Mm. seems to take forever. So that last mile will be hard now. Uh, And so that's why I think the market is still predicting that the Fed will raise 25 basis points, even though the data this week is really strong in terms of a look at reduced inflation. Um, there's still a bit to go, and the one thing they don't want to do is to to let the uh, the foot off the throat, so to speak, uh, ensure that it stays down. So it looks like then we've got a rate hike coming uh, this month in uh, in a week or so's time. But then the markets are basically saying uh, no more rate hikes now for the rest of this year, although the Fed was saying uh, there's going to be two. Um, and markets are now also pricing in a rate cut again in January. What do you think of that? Slightly premature, I think, because only a month ago we were talking pretty much the opposite. You know, we're going to, as you mentioned, two or three rate hikes potentially, even mentioned by the Fed, plus no rate cuts for the foreseeable future, at least into the second half of next year. So um, that's the market, you know, reacting to good news. Um, I think probably there's a little bit to play out um, in terms of how you know, the Reserve Bank, or so Central Bank, should I say, the Fed, um, are, re- are navigating this soft landing. I still don't think we're quite uh, convinced, um, but it's certainly looking better after this week. So I suspect that's been a little bit of market um, being a little preemptive. What does this mean for the US dollar? The, that's the, 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 the asset that's really taken the biggest hit from this, isn't it? The US dollar index fell below 100 last night. So it's at a 15-month low now. And we've seen some big rebounds in the Japanese yen, the euro, the British pound um, in particular. Do you think now the trend has reversed for the US dollar? Yeah, I'm, I, it definitely been a significant move. You know, sub 100 um, psychologically one bit, but also technically looks like it has broken down. Um, but again, I think it's it, it it's often an overreaction. Um, so let's see how it settles in the next month or so as we see the data come through. But earnings season in the US to see how you know how the corporate sector is going in reality, as opposed to you know purely looking at economic data. So there's a lot to play out over the coming months, and as we come out of the summertime in the northern hemisphere, you know there'll be there'll be more and more data, more and more uh, eyes on, more and more attention. So I think that lays the focus of attention from the market will sort of um, come into play in the next couple of months. So right now, I think it's it's a significant break technically in the dollar index, but um, it could have overshot already. Let me switch uh, attentions to another country, to India. We had inflation data out uh, there as well, and it's moved in the other direction there. It accelerated for the first time in five months to to 4.81%. It was at 4.31% in May. Uh, In particular, food inflation uh, increased to 5% from 2.91% in May. Um, how's, uh, How's the government reacting to that or the Reserve Bank of India reacting to that? 
Well, you've got to look at it specifically uh, in India. They have staples, key staples in India are onions, tomatoes, chilies, and ginger. And, and uh, the tomatoes uh, supply is absolutely devastated through unseasonal patterns uh, in the monsoon. Uh, in the lead up, so you had a huge spike increase, a three hundred percent increase in tomato prices. Um, it's twenty million um, tons of tomatoes produced every year or demand in in India. So um, both onions and tomatoes represent um, quite a significant uh, input to the staples for for all Indians. And so when tomato prices went up, uh, that led to the big spike in the inflation figure. But if you look at all, all of the other elements of inflation and you strip out that, um, the increases were pretty mild. So I don't think it changes policy for the Reserve Bank of India. Uh, and it's something that we've seen historically in India where you do get these quite volatile moves in staple prices due to um, seasonal you know, monsoon conditions. Mm. So it's quite a volatile um, series. So I think um, for those who, who go to McDonald's in India, I think they I read somewhere that there were no tomatoes in McDonald's yeah. burgers for a period of time. I saw that. I saw that they've taken them off their menu and local farmers are, are reporting large-scale thefts of their tomato crops. There seems to be a bit mm. of a, a tomato crisis going on because if you have a, if you like masala, um, you need tomatoes for that, don't you? Yeah, well, they've had onion crises previously, sort of 2020. 2010, 2011, and 13. I think we you know similar type uh, spikes in, in in onion prices caused the inflation figures to to move quite aggressively, and so it is a significant short term factor, but shouldn't play through in terms of inflation expectations overall in India. Mm. Let me ask you about one other thing going on in India, and this is Foxconn pulling out of its uh, joint venture uh, with its local partner Vedanta um, to open up a, a, an electronics manufacturing uh, factory over in Gujarat, which is uh, Narendra Modi's home state, isn't it? Um, how significant is that? Is, is Foxconn uh, going to carry on trying to um, and look for a new partner? Yeah, I think that's what I gather. It, it, being a long distance away now, it's hard to read it. I guess psychologically, it's a blow to Modi, you know, because uh, the made in India, the desire to develop a semiconductor market um, in terms of manufacturing uh, in in the state of Gujarat, but also more broadly in India, it's it's been sort of one of their headline uh, drives. And the Foxconn Vedanta deal was, you know, nineteen and a half billion AV, not insignificant. So, yeah, it has a psychological impact. Both companies have said that they're still going to pursue. Um, the, the technicalities around why it happened, I don't know, and I don't have enough information as to what happened to, to drive them apart, apart from the fact that they probably found it difficult to find the technical partner to deliver on the manufacturing. Um, so I think that both companies have said that they're going to continue to invest uh, and we know that the semiconductor in sector in India, I think, is going to be a $63 billion by 2026. And so uh, there is a commitment for the government to continue to invest. There are incentives for companies like Foxconn to invest in manufacturing in India. I think it's uh, – so maybe it's just a bit of a hiccup and maybe it's more just a relationship between those two companies that they couldn't get through. But um, I don't know enough from where I sit to be able to give you know a real value judgment as to what happened. Toby, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back 
on Monday. In the meantime, have a great weekend. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday morning. Joining me are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Christopher Lee, Partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. And providing a view from mainland China will be Brock Silvers, the CIO at Kion Capital. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 